Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin, flying solo today, and I'm going to be your host for today's episode, It's Supplemental. Today we're going to sit down with Ben Roswell and Caro Assertion to talk about their rearguard supply drop for Beamsaber. Welcome, Ben and Caro. Hello. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I always like doing these collaborative design team episodes because you all have so much to talk about and I don't have to talk a whole lot. So <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, Caro and I do uh, nothing but talk to each other all week. So Oh, is that so? <laughs> uh, I think we when we were when we were doing the supplement, we were on call for like eight hours straight or something, like just talking through all the details. Yeah, there were definitely some some pretty long long days with that one. Yeah. Well, Ben and Carol, this is your life, I guess, because we're going to talk about your background a little bit. Yeah, sure. to start. Can both of you talk to me a little bit about your origin story in terms of like game design? What got you into designing games? Ben, would you like to go first? I think I've always been pretty interested in like games and like curious about tabletop games, but I never really played them because I never really had friends. You know, I was I was a very like I was had a pretty isolated childhood. And the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college, I started just like hanging around people who were playing games a lot and talking to friends who were doing game design stuff. And I had started in my sophomore year of college a D&D campaign with a couple of friends and didn't particularly like it. My G- The GM was really amazing and we were doing a lot of homebrew stuff and I, but I just wasn't, I just didn't care. <laughs> Like, I just didn't care about, like, the fantasy world that we were building. Like, I cared about my character, but, like, I I couldn't care less about elves, frankly. And I was getting kind of, like, frustrated with that. Like, I loved, like, the, I loved, like, the role-playing <laughs> and the acting element, but, like, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> and then I was, like, I was stuck at home, very isolated over the summer because I can't drive. And my family wasn't, like driving me around to, like, do things. And I just started writing, like, I started writing a game, Random Access Histories, which you can still buy if you'd like, despite it being, like, a very early game. Mm-hmm. And and then I took a, some time off to go to college and then dropped out of college, and I was suddenly like, okay, well, I was in art school, which is important context. And I was like, um, well, I, I need some art to do. And so I was, you know, thinking seriously about what, making art solitarily looks like in as opposed to like in the concept in like the context of a theater company and i i just like sort of like jumped back into it and started like making friends in the scene and really getting into like what designing tabletop games could be and i mean that's basically it from that point to this point it's pretty straight trajectory of just going okay what if I do this next. I empathize with the no friends in early life. <laughs> that might even be a prerequisite to being a game designer in your adult in adulthood. I don't even I don't know. It, it might be. We'll have to it, test that it might be. And Carol, what about you? Where did you get your start in game design? There's definitely some overlap with Ben. I would say, you know, not 100% the same, but uh cut from a, a pretty similar cloth. I grew up seeing a lot of you know, pop culture tabletop. Like, you know, there's all of these cartoons that have, oh, the the D&D episode, or D&D is, like, in the cultural milieu. And it's, like, very... There's, there's, you know, it it has a cultural gravity to it. 
Um, so I always, I think, knew about it in the background, but I never really played it myself. I had some friends in high school who were part of a regular kind of ongoing campaign, and they invited me to it, and I was able to, you know, I came for one or two sessions, and was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I like the role-playing aspects. I see why people appeal to this, or why this appeals to people. But, you know, similar to Ben, it, it didn't really stick for me. Part of that was, you know, I was, I was also in high school. I couldn't drive. I couldn't, you know, make it to sessions regularly. So I was able to appreciate that, you know, my, my friends were having this experience and, and cultivating this experience, but my own personal take on it was very kind of secondhand, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, I, I ended up going to college and being surrounded by other nerds and other people who... A, some of them, you know, had more of that background, but B, also just other people who were also very artsy and weren't necessarily coming in with the same, the background of, oh, I've, I've played tabletop games before, but, you know, had that interest or that spark of what they found kind of curious about it. My very first semester in college, I happened to get into a class that was on game design and it wasn't tabletop specifically. But it was kind of an intersection of tabletop and just the ideas of, okay, what, what does play look like? That was actually the, the class that kind of introduced me to a lot of indie games. They like said, here's a copy of Microscope. Take a look at this. Mm. What piques your interest about it? One of the, the teachers talked a lot about PBTA, the, that framework of, okay, what does fiction first play look like when you're, you're not necessarily constrained to the the mechanics of something that's quite as crunchy as as D&D. And it was right around that time that I also started getting back into actual play podcasts. There were a handful of other podcasts I was listening to at the time and people were really into, you know, I was just seeing a lot of actual play podcasts at the time and I I tried to get into a tabletop campaign in college and similar to high school I, I kind of fell off the wagon I just wasn't able to commit the full time to it but I was like oh actual play is interesting because it means that I can you know still have this secondhand experience of engaging with these systems but not having to set aside all of the time regularly every week when you know we're all college students, we have all of these other commitments that we're juggling. And that was when I stumbled on Friends at the Table, and they were doing their Twilight Mirage season, which is actually how I first heard about Forged in the Dark, uh, because they it was right around that time they were switching from, um, I think it was what, the, the Veil over to Scum and Villainy? That's right. Yeah, in that first season? Yeah. Of Twilight Mirage specifically? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Uh, do you ever just like wipe out whole parts of your life from your memory? Because <laughs> I just realized like that actually my origin story is I ran an actual play podcast for like eight months, but I just forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago was that? It was like uh, like five years ago, four years ago. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's just whenever they were really starting to become. Uh, super more popular i guess uh, yeah. at least in the indie yeah. tabletop space we had yeah. to, we had to end it because i'm depressed and bipolar and my like my <laughs> co-player was um facing some medical issues at the time and i 
was very embarrassed by that and just wiped it from my memory. But that was my real intro into tabletop games. <laughs> Thank you, Caro, for reminding me. I didn't know that. We're we're getting the the secret Roswell origin story on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really are. Well, you covered a lot of ground there, which is great because I was going to ask you about a lot of that stuff, specifically like the you're interested in actual play podcasts. I suspect, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that your interest in Beam Saver was maybe partially inspired by Friends at the Table. Is that is that an <laughs> assumption that I can make? Uh, I think it's that's actually not quite right for either of us because uh-huh. we've been in like a shared designer space with Austin Ramsey for ah. like even before Friends at the Table started playing Beam Saber. Certainly, like Friends at the Table playing Beam Saber, like put it to the front of our mind. Do you know what I mean? Yes. A lot of the things that are in this supplement are things that were started by us sort of watching how people were interacting with Beam Saber. And, like, a a lot of that, like, response to, like, how people are playing Beam Saber came out of the the Beam Saber boom around Friends on the Table, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, the game being on our radar was, like, much before that, I think. I don't want to speak for Caro, but... Well, actually, let's take a moment to talk about that. Maybe, Carrie, you can help uh, with this part of, of explaining what Rear Guard is and, and like what's, what Beam Saber is. People who listen to this podcast religiously will have heard our interview with Austin, so they probably have some idea, but not everyone you know, starts in the middle. Uh, so, so why don't you uh, give us a little summary? For sure. Uh, Beam Saber, I'm, I'm just gonna read this from Austin's itch.io page. <laughs> Beautiful. Beam Saber is a forged in the dark game about the pilots of powerful machines in a war that dominates every facet of life. And it's, you know, forged in the dark, the systems are, you know, built off of base blades, but it, it takes mm-hmm. the, you know, more heisty mechanics of, of that system and translates it into something that's slightly more space operatic, you know. Yeah, more of a mission structure. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the structure less being around uh, scores or, or jobs and, and being more based around missions, certainly. Rearguard is our kind of direct response to Beam Saber. It's a uh, supply drop. It's a, a supplement. It takes the, you know, high-stakes soap opera, you know, mecha anime qualities of Beam Saber, and just sort of grounds it a little bit more. We like to say that Rearguard is a social and low-violence supplement, uh, so it takes the the qualities of, you know, bombastic space battles and introduces some some questions about ethics, some mechanics that are a little bit more focused on support roles, and kind of frameworks for social interaction. Things that aren't necessarily just about the aspects of the war that are very, you know, flashy and and on the page. I'll say that uh, I, I I say this kind of lovingly. If if Beam Saber is the wow cool robot in the meme, Rearguard is the the war is bad actually. <laughs> yes, you know I like a few things about Rearguard specifically, and one of them is it is very much a supplement that is about war, which Beam Saber is ostensibly about as well. But I mean that in the sense that, well, just as an example, you have a number of playbooks in the supplement, and each one of them comes with a content warning (laughs) for something that is surrounding war, which is fair, because war definitely deserves a content warning in all of its aspects. 
I actually wanted to ask both of you, was it a conscious thing to deal with difficult topics? Like each, each playbook almost deals with its own difficult topic surrounding war and warfare. Yeah, the answer is like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So for a little bit of background on the supplement, I did the original sort of listing of mm -hmm. playbooks on my own, like almost a year and a half ago, like late winter 2018, maybe a year, like January 2020. Not quite sure on the exact dates, right? And the original concept was, it was called Those Who Serve Other Masters. Mm -hmm. And it was about like people in the war who have to deal with the larger context of the war. They aren't just soldiers, right? They are people who are yeah. who are attached to sort of the war structures in a more fundamental way than somebody whose like job is just to go and infiltrate something and then bring stuff back, right? And I wanted, like, I specifically sat down and, like, tried to list, like, real-world war jobs and real-world structures that impact how we wage war. So, you know, the playbooks have changed a lot in their, like, actual conception over time. But that sort of, like, core concept of it being a, a sort of supplement that is very much about connecting the game that you are playing to, like, thinking about the war as something that is, like, very real was deliberate from the beginning. I also just believe that there's no easy answers when you're dealing with conflict. Yeah. There's obviously like bad guys or good guys on like a national level, maybe, but <laughs> even then not really, but especially like on the ground, there's no, there's no easy. The thing I'm doing is purely right. The thing I'm doing is purely wrong. And I think that this is a little bit like a design philosophy thing, but I really think that like a lot of playbooks in Forge in the Dark become about how do you answer questions, right? Like there's a wall in front of you, how do you get around it? And I wanted to make playbooks that asked you as many questions as they answered about how you are playing and where every move that you are sort of making is a move that complicates the situation that you're in as well as gives you a benefit. And, and so it was a very deliberate sort of choice as I brought Cairo into the process and as we started working very, very hardcore on the supplement as like a serious thing that we were going to do, it became very apparent that we needed to have conversations about like, well, what are the threads that we want players to be looking at and asking questions about? when they play this playbook? What aspects of war culture are we interested in here? What are our touchstones, not just in, like, media in general, but war media, right? And, like, grounding it very much in that was, a like, a quite deliberate choice. I, yeah, I could really feel it uh, in, when in reading through the supplement that, you know, these are difficult topics and each, each playbook takes those themes and really runs with them in interesting directions that, people should be excited to play. Like, I wouldn't warn anyone against playing these playbooks. It's not that kind of content warning. It's, it's if you're okay with playing, a, you know, Beam Saver, a game about, <laughs> you know, difficult decisions in warfare, I think you'll probably be okay with playing these as well. But I was really struck by how you specifically chose different topics for each one. Like, they really felt like they were tackling their own individual kind of struggle. Right. Whatever that was. Caro, another thing I noticed about this, these playbooks and the supplement, is how well everything kind of looks and how put together and, and different 
the supply drop books. I've noticed your, is this your art that I have noticed going around on various Beam Saber playbooks? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Not just Ben's. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for for a little bit of context, Ben and I kind of first started collaborating on Rearguard. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll walk this back a little bit more. Back when Ben was sharing his initial draft of Those Who Serve Other Masters, one of the playbooks that was included in that that very early draft um, that he shared in, yeah, I think January of, of last year was uh, The Giant Killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, a, a very early draft of it was interesting to me. I was like, oh, this takes the aspects of Beam Saber that, I mean, at the time, I was still kind of daunted by Beam Saber. I was like, 12, 12 attributes is already a lot. You're giving me six more? I, I can't keep track of all of these. What are quirks? What are what are breakdowns? Like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. At at the time, I found that very daunting. But a handful of friends. This was probably last April, and I got together and we're like, hey, what if we did a beam saver campaign? Because we were thinking about mechs and thinking about you know these these questions of embodiment and and war, and I was you know really excited to to play with some some of our mutual friends. But I was like, what what playbook am I interested in? And I remembered the draft of the giant killer that Ben had had shared. Uh, and I asked him, hey, do you mind if I, I playtest this and you know test it out, give it a whirl, and if you want any design feedback, I'd be happy to share the, the experience I've had with it. And he very graciously agreed. And over you know the next couple of months, that evolved into a little bit more of an extensive design conversation, mm-hmm. which then evolved into me asking, hey, I really like the work you've done with this. Do you want me to do some illustration for it? And he agreed to that. You know, the the giant killer ended up getting published. And, and kind of since then, I think playing with the giant killer and having those design conversations with Ben opened up not just my my own design sensibilities about Forge in the Dark, but also, yeah, my, my kind of illustrative style mm-hmm. for these playbooks. So I've illustrated at the time of recording, probably it's just going to be the three that are out right now. The Giant Killer by Ben, The Watchpoint, which is a playbook that I designed and illustrated myself, and The Angel by our friend Janie Jaffe-W. And, and Rearguard, of course. Yes. Yeah, it all looks very great. I love this particular style, especially for Beam Saber. The, those colors and the harsh shapes really work. Yeah, like the first time that Kara sent me art for the Giant Killer, I was just like blown away. Like it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I had in mind. I say that and that's that's not a bad thing. Like I was thinking like, I don't know. The thing that I had in my mind when I started making the Giant Killer is like old war photos because the Giant Killer comes very much about my like Mm-hmm. from my experience with, like, my family's military service, right? And and then Caro, like, showed me this art that was, like, you know, dynamic and um, tonal, like, tonally colored and just, like, so amazing. Looking at that art shook up my idea of what playbooks could be, right? Because, like, I was like, oh, suddenly I have to make a playbook that is as cool and as dynamic, <laughs> as this art right suddenly like i oh i can see these characters in motion in a way i haven't been able to see them before and in like rearguard 
pinning down like what the the illustrations for each playbook was was a really big part of like figuring out what the moves and the gear should be actually definitely yeah isn't that a cool thing yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. that idea of the the atmosphere and kind of the quality of you know capturing the tone of of what we want to evoke not just through the mechanics and not just through the art but also through the way that the two are are synthesized are are kind of intertwined our our design collaboration small planet games we think very deliberately about intention and just making sure that what we're putting down is like a really clear and deliberate choice and making sure that it all kind of feels cohesive in in one like strong direction or another mm-hmm. absolutely the deliberateness is like really important to us i think so many times it was like a back and forth of like this is nitpicky this is nitpicky this is nitpicky like we know it's nitpicky we know we're being incredibly detail oriented but like that level of like well, what do you want pictured? What's the art? What's the which is the one object that gets pulled out of the gear list? What's the image you want to introduce this playbook on? Like all of that, like was part of our like being like incredibly careful about like what we reproduced inside the book, you know. And I think that's an ethos that we feel really strongly about. We we got into some some very you know extensive arguments about the order of the pilot gear. Um, the order of the moves um just making sure that you know as people are looking through this you know the the thing about this being a pdf and not a physical zine is is that it has that kind of infinite scroll quality to it it's like you know you're you're flipping through pages but we're really intentional about flow and using the flow and the the structure of a particular playbook to tell a story in and of itself Mm -hmm. you know going from the the big splash image to a little bit of flavor text to some questions to why should you choose this playbook what are the things you should be thinking about as you're going into this playbook and then going into gear and moves like we're really trying to approach it with the level of thought to the the structure and the the narrative of just that form Speaking of intentionality, mm-hmm. another thing I really like about this supplement, I'm going to say this, and for some people, they might think like, hmm, that's maybe a little backwards compliment. I, I don't, I honestly don't mean it that way. But many, many Forge in the Dark playbooks are a single page. They <laughs> can fit on a single print, page printout as a play sheet. And if someone is going to go the extra mile, sometimes there are four pages, including a picture for like the book version you know, for like the single page by page book version. In rear guard, the playbooks are, what is it, eight to 10 pages each? I think it's 12. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, I think so. You give ample room to each of these playbooks and you give a lot of content, a lot of material for each one. Mm-hmm. What was your decision behind going that route? You know, putting in content that could never, probably would never be able to fit on just like a play sheet, but is still like, I can tell it's fundamental to to how you design these playbooks, but what was the philosophy for going that route as opposed to cutting? There's a lot of different things. The the base level is just that there was a lot of things that we felt were that we could not remove. Right. Yeah. Like we we felt that we could not remove tips 
especially because these playbooks play so differently to a lot of Forge in the Dark playbooks. To us, the ethics section is absolutely necessary, and, like, the touchstones and intro text really needed their own space to breathe. Mm -hmm. And then also, just that in each of these playbooks, we set out a rule that we are going to tackle, like, two different, like, threads of conversation or possibility or thematics. And we realized at some point that, like, if we wanted to do that playbooks that were not just one note, one idea, one question, that we needed more moves and that we needed more gear <laughs> and that we needed yeah. we needed to really give it space to breathe. And that if we wanted a playbook that was at the level of like complicatedness. Having multiple vectors. Yeah, having multiple vectors that we just had to be, it had to be big. I don't think we realized quite how big, like this is going to be 70 pages we didn't mean this. Like, no, <laughs> thank you. I mean, to me, that's part of what makes it like a successful, successful as a supplement and not just a series of playbooks. Right. You know, you, you have a lot of context within these playbooks that, you know, they could have been released individually, but besides the theming and, you know, the additional content, the amount of space you give to everything, again, I mean, this as a compliment. I really like how you've let yourself be unrestrained with the word count for a lot of these special abilities in particular. I'm looking at the occultist harbinger ability, for example. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's long enough that if personally, if I were to include it in one of my playbooks for like Blades in the Dark, I would have to cut half of that easily <laughs> to like to be able to like fit it in the way I wanted it to to fit on the play sheet. But the way you have it here, it creates a really cool situation it's a really cool ability and it, it needs that room to breathe in order to really provide all the context that someone needs to to pull it off correctly so i think it's pretty successful i, I mean the, the like the jokey thing is like well if you play with the big dogs you got to let yourself have word count right like a lot of these playbooks i don't know if we've touched on it enough yet but like a lot of these playbooks like pretty fundamentally rewrite how the game is played and in like not completely but in one aspect and we just needed that room like we weren't gonna cut things on like a large scale if it was gonna make things unclear on the other hand we spent a lot of time making sure that each playbook was only 12 pages <laughs> only uh-huh. Like, Caro had a very hard rule that, like, we were not going to make these these playbooks odd numbers of pages. And that there came moments where Caro was like, okay, now cut. <laughs> it's about that consistent format. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of playbooks that really change up the game, Caro, would you like to talk about maybe, do you have a favorite playbook from this supplement? And would you like to talk about how it changes up the game, just as an example to our listeners? Yeah, well... All of all of them are my favorites in, in different ways, mm -hmm. but I'll jump in with one of these just because this was kind of the the first playbook that we felt that the two of us really cracked. Um, you know, we were talking through all of five of them at a very high concept, but when we sat down and we're like, okay, we're really going to dig into this. The first playbook that we really sat with was the Quartermaster, mm -hmm. which is kind of a logistics officer that sits at the intersection of people and money and, you know, dealing favors and making promises and just having a lot of bargains and kind of playing that, that in that fixer space. And the first move, the, the first thing that we, we knew about it 
was we, I think Ben said, I'm really interested in playing with XP. And I think at, at some point during that process, we were just kicking ideas around. And he was like, what if you can buy moves? And I was like, what, what does buying moves mean? What does that mean in a way that's different from, you know, spending regular XP? And we stumbled across this idea of leverage, which is that, you know, instead of marking XP in order to take special abilities, you gain, the quartermaster gains a specific currency called leverage, and that lets them, you know, buy new abilities or or level up their attributes the way that you would with XP. But they can also use it to tick forward progress on long-term projects. They can spend it to turn roles into a mixed success. They can spend it to declare that players owe you a minor favor or a major favor. And you can sell moves. Once you've bought a move, you can say, okay, I'm I'm actually... You know, I, I really want to turn this role into a mixed success, so I'm going to spend a special ability that I've bought, get that cost back in leverage, and, and pool that elsewhere. That idea of, of fungibility and, and always kind of keeping track of what resources you have access to was something that was, was really interesting to us. I mean, just in that, that very initial brainstorming session, I think we, we came up with a rough draft of all, all 10 moves in mm. one brainstorming session and we were like well shit we have 10 moves that's more than most most playbooks only have eight but we also when we were looking at them we were like we can't cut any of these because they all feel so integral um as far as the ways that you're spending leverage the ways that you are you know not spending leverage but leaning into the the social aspects of this playbook we felt like to cut any particular moves and and bring it down to eight would just remove those those vectors and and kind of water them down in a way that we really weren't weren't interested in and then we we sort of just looked at each other and we're like well we've got 10 moves guess this means we're doing 10 moves for for every single playbook (laughs) (laughs) It, it was also like something that became very fundamental to our our approach to rear guard was the idea that every playbook should be about playing a different genre of game inside Beam Saber. And sort of the quartermaster is where we found that, because I think somewhere in that like long conversation where we drafted those 10 moves, I can't even remember which one of us said it, but we came to this idea of like, this should play like a farming simulator, right? This should play like Stardew Valley. This should play like a management game. Cookie clicker. Where, like, yeah, a cookie clicker. Where you you invest <laughs> to get more stuff, you know, and the more mm-hmm. you invest, the bigger the swings you can make are, and that there are moves that aren't that don't do anything in play, but that they give you more leverage, which you can then invest in more ways, and that's where we found that loop, and then that question, like what other genre that's not mech fiction is this playbook about, became like a very core question to us in each of the other playbooks. Yeah, that's something I like about the supplement is it's it's brave in what you add, which I imagine is very rewarding because I know when you're making a new game, a hack of something existing, the stuff you add is often what's going to make your game stand out. It's what's going to inspire cool new abilities or cool takes on what already exists. And you can see that in the Quartermaster, which has a lot of abilities that are really unique and play off of its kind of uh, core concept. 
And that kind of brings me to something I, I want to ask you all, uh, kind of back to our topic of, of supplements. What made you want to do this as a supplement rather than a hack? Because whenever we get into, you know, indie game design, there's always the question at a certain level of uh, when, whenever you go all in, you know, this is nearly 100 pages. <laughs> uh, whenever you go all in, there's always a question of why is this a supplement and not its own thing? I think for me, there's like a couple of different different reasons. Like it's like a very complicated ball of things. One is just that like I have respect for Austin Ramsey and he's made a game that is really, really cool and that I saw some gaps in it. Like not gaps that are like critical or cruel. Every game has gaps, right? You know, mm-hmm. but he wrote a game that was very much about the front lines and that was part of his design, right? And that was a specific choice on his part. But I saw a need and a desire, both in myself and in other players, to tell stories about mechs and about the things that you can do in Beam Saber, but that weren't necessarily about being on the front lines. And I don't want to write another game if a friend of mine has already written the game in that space that I think is wonderful and amazing and cool, right? What I want to do is step in and, and help them in the way that I can, right? You know, or accent it or get to be like, yes, and wow, you've given me something really cool that I get to build off of, right? And and like create a dialogue with another designer through our work, even if we're not working necessarily on collaboration, right? And then the other thing is that, like, I just, I don't do big games very often. I think that's really funny, seeing as how Carol and I just released a 100-page supplement and are going to release, like, another very, very large game. But, like, going into this, this is the largest thing I've ever worked on. I love to do small, experimental things that take me a month, take me a couple of weeks, take me an evening. Like, I don't think of myself as a big game designer. I don't really have a desire to sit down and make a Forged in the Dark game. Instead, what I want to do is experiment with the tools that people already have. And I don't want people to have to learn a whole new Forged in the Dark game to engage with my work. And also, a lot of the things that I am curious about Forged in the Dark, like what happens when you push things further, like what happens instead of like queuing very close to the Forged in the Dark formats, that was laid out by Blades in the Dark. Like, what happens if you push it further, if you say, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. But if I wanted to put those in a game that already existed, I would have to, like, do thousands and thousands of hours of design work. And I would have to, like, really fundamentally, I don't know if I could write a Forged in the Dark game and come out with a Forged in the Dark game. (laughs) And, And that sounds egotistical, and I really don't mean it that way. I just mean that, like... No. The questions I want to ask are about, like, what if I pull on this specific system? This specific subsystem, not what if I totally restructure this whole thing, right? And supplements allow me to ask those questions without having to put in the years and years and years that Austin Ramsey have put in, that John Harper have put, has put in, in order to create an overarching structure. My friends... And designers I respect who are not my friends have made fun playgrounds. Now I get to come in and play around in them. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Ben, I feel like you've you've really just sort of put it into words as as well as I could have, or or better than I could have. I don't know. I think 
there's a quality to supplements in particular. I mean, hacks at large, but but supplements in particular that feels, you know, almost like fan fiction. There's mm-hmm. so much less of an emotional and like a, a mental and cognitive hurdle that you have to step over in order to to play in that space. Like, you know, if if we had decided, oh, we're we're not going to release Rear Guard as a supplement for Beam Saber. We're going to turn it into its own its own thing. We would have to spend, you know, another 10 pages coming up with, okay, well, what are what are the stats that we're using? What are the things that we need to introduce to somebody who's, you know, completely unfamiliar with the the Forge in the Dark system? But because we're saying, no, this is based on a property or a, a system that somebody's already familiar with, it just really expedites. And it's like, okay, cool, we can all hit the ground running. We're all on the same page here. And I think hacks do that to a, a larger degree, certainly. Like, you know, you look at Beam Saber and say, oh, it's like Blades, but mech fiction instead. And that kind of idea of genre reskinning is a really, you know, invaluable way of helping people get on the same page. And it's like, okay, that's it's it's doing its own pushing of systems in a in a different way, but with with supplements in particular, I feel like you're so dialed in to the specific systems of okay, what makes Beam Saber as a game about mech fiction, as a game about war, what makes that tick? And then just dialing in even further into okay, well, well, which of those levers do we want to pull on? Right, and I think the the other thing, like a thing that I have also realized, is that I really value as a designer an adversarial relationship with the mainstream content that I am thinking about and working in conversation with. And I say that adversarial not in in like a combative or cruel or uh, egotistical way, but rather in like an academic sense of I value being able to to push back and be in like an, an adversarial or parallel or perpendicular conversation to sort of mainstreaming common narratives. And I feel like with Beam Saber, Austin Ramsey is like very, very, very much nailed what like what mech fiction has been for a very long time and how you tell like stories that come out of mech fiction, like the mech fiction canon of anime and of like even more modern movies, like in things like Pacific Rim. Like I think he has very, very much nailed that. But allowing a supplement allows me to say, to push back on that and to say like, okay, what happens if we create characters or playbooks or questions or structures that don't necessarily enforce or support the those storylines? I think that as a queer person, as a trans person, I often find myself in a perpendicular or adversarial relationship to history or to mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's important not to give that up because there is a power in saying, okay, these things aren't made to encompass everything I care about, but I'm going to make them, right? And the moment that I say, okay, the mainstream, the thing that already exists is perfectly comfortable to me, I secede the power that discomfort has and the power that being marginal has 
to creating stories that are complicated and not in line with like mainstream narrative patterns. And I don't know if you can write like a a huge 400 page Forged in the Dark game (laughs) that maintains that like essentially marginalized and adversarial relationship with mainstream narratives because Forged in the Dark games are built on a sort of episodic, very like, you know, Forged in the, like Blades in the Dark pulls from crime shows and Beam Saber pulls from arcs and anime. And I just don't think that you can make a huge game and maintain that. And it's something I very, very deeply value. Yeah, I have not yet seen the Forge in the Dark game that doesn't pull from some kind of popular fiction or what have you, specifically because of that 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 episodic format, the action elements. They're, they're very in line mm-hmm. with what we expect from kind of popular media of various sorts. So I feel you there. I would really like to see that game, though. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe one day. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, part of what we're doing on the show is exploring to what lengths we can can bend and break and reforge. uh, Forge in the dark games, huh? So Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to see a game that, that does that successfully pop up one of these days. We are coming towards the end of our interview, but I do wonder, as far as like, supplements and what have you uh, do you think you might play in the forge in the dark space again with a different game at some point uh who knows i know that there's there's a 1.5 version of this mm-hmm. supplement coming ah no no new playbooks no new crew types like you know th- that that essential structure is going to maintain but we have some more like essays about playing in the forge in the dark space and about like the uh, thought process behind this supplement that are coming, and also like some sample we're factions. We're interested in adding some, yeah, some factions, some you know, tables of of weird ghost shit for the occultist. Uh, yeah, examples of you know what what faith might play like for the chaplain. Right. We're interested in with with our our one point five release just fleshing this this space out a little bit more in a way that you know doesn't turn it into a completely new system but just offers a few more handholds for people who right you know might might look at this and and still want something to 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 bounce off of a little bit more and i have one more question about the game before we go into our plugs i noticed that you worked with a developmental editor juliette lewis of mousewife games yeah a lot of designers in the space haven't had the luxury of working with a developmental editor. I wonder if you could briefly talk about that experience and how it added to your game. Yeah, we, I mean, we knew from the jump that working on, on these playbooks was, you know, we were pushing the system in a, in a completely new direction. All of these are pushing in ways that we had no idea how they were actually going to play out. You know, we can put all of these ideas down on the page, but until somebody actually, you know, until a player actually picks them up and says, okay, this is what I'm going to be playing, I'm, I'm using this playbook, we're only supplying half of that conversation. And we, we really just wanted to make sure that, you know, during the process, we were getting a bunch of different eyes on, on it kind of at, at every step of the process, not just 
looking at our our finished first draft and saying, okay, this this you know typos need correction or these these mechanics seem seem too overpowered. But also, again, just tying into the idea of having multiple through lines in each of these playbook and making sure that those felt clear and felt like we were we were balancing the the conceptual goals as much as mm-hmm. we were the mechanical goals. So we we asked a bunch of different folks for feedback and we had, you know, a handful of different people reading and just offering their thoughts, but Juliet as our developmental editor was really instrumental in talking through just some of the big picture ideas of you know what what are we hoping to accomplish with these playbooks both in terms of tone but also in terms of what's you know what's the goal that we're trying to convey what's the what's the thesis statement and both of us were you know we 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 said that we're kind of nitpicky we have the tendency to just really get into the reads with with some of the minutia and we just knew that you know having another perspective um of somebody who wasn't keeping their head down and and chipping away at everything would be invaluable for us to hand it off to somebody who might be able to say no you've you've gone down the rabbit hole too far and juliet was really uh just an, an invaluable perspective on on offering that yeah and we didn't we didn't change everything that they suggested that we should change <laughs> particularly with the chaplain they had a lot of like mm-hmm. um not concerns because they really liked our direction, but like thoughts about spaces that we had were missing that we kind of were like, well, no, that those spaces are actually deliberately left blank. This space intentionally left right. blank. But just even just hearing like, oh, I've noticed there's a blank space here was like, okay, yes, then our intent is coming across correctly. Right. And, and also it was just like great to like, you know, <laughs> It wasn't just Juliet. We had like a really amazing like collection of friends and acquaintances who offered their thoughts and, you know, told us like, what the hell? When we like proposed something that was just too out there, there was like a moment where in an earlier version of the chaplain, we had uh, what Kara calls an infinite spark machine, where if you had a certain combination of moves, you could just have infinite spark and there was no limit. Uh. And you would have to have really worked for that. Like, it wouldn't be like an early game thing, right? And we had a friend who just sent us, like, Ben Affleck smoking memes, like, while looking at this move. And then, like, we knew that we had to step it back. (laughs) (laughs) But having that feedback and having people to, to push back and say, no, you've gone too far, was it was just really invaluable for during the development process being able to defend our choices being pushed to defend our choices and and say you know either yes this is deliberate or no you're right we we need to to refine this we need to push this even further in a way that comes across more clearly in a way that like makes it more of a banger (laughs) yeah well it it is a banger yeah uh i will give the two of you that (laughs) Thank you, Ben and Caro, for joining us today and for all your insights into Rearguard. If our listeners want to learn more about you or your games, where can they go? They can find me at Roswell Writes on Twitter or at roswellian.itch.io. I have 
Rearguard is there, and then also uh, the Giant Killer, which is the first in a series of Beam Saber playbooks that have come out, and um, a bunch of other work. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at C-Excursion, spelled S-E-A, Excursion. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash C-Excursion, uh, and you can find my games at cexcursion.itch.io, including... All of the Beam Saber playbooks that I've done illustration for are all just in a collection uh, on my, my itch page. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. For listeners, I am Justin hosting this episode, and you can find my games at Mothlands on Twitter or at moth-lands.itch.io. I want to thank both of you for, for appearing on, on the show and talking about the supply drop Thank you again, and this has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, so I hope people can listen to this and get inspired to make their own supplements for all kinds of hacks. I know that the designers really love it. I'm sure Austin was really excited to see Rear Guard come out. I I know you're friends, but, <laughs> yeah. but I know I would be, if a friend of mine wrote a supplement for my game, I would be so excited. Again, I am Justin, and remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.